0: It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to the last book of the Bible this morning as we continue to look at the churches that Jesus speaks to here in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I apologize if my voice is a little scratchy this morning or have a cough, I have a little throat problem going on myself, but I am thrilled to be here today and looking forward to Opening up this portion of God's Word. This morning I want to talk to you about the Do Good Week Doctrine Church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Even as these words are read, I pray that you would hear in your heart and mind the Apostle Paul admonishing us all scripture is God breathed. All of it is God breathe. it is able to make us complete, sufficient, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Having the Word of God and the Gospel of God, we are lacking nothing. We need to live to the glory of God. And I pray that we would receive it in just such a way this morning. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. O Lord, as we hear Your Word to the church at Pergamum, may we remind ourselves that this is a word to your churches. For what we are to apply here extends beyond this congregation to all congregations. We, like the church at Pergamum, are to respond to who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, help us to look in. Help us to hear as your body, but Lord, help us also to hear as people who make up this body, knowing that we are to order our lives based on what you have said. Oh Lord, we have ears, let us hear what the Spirit of Christ says to Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, and we pray it in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. I once knew a church that completely split because they were arguing over what you could do on the Lord's Day. The particular nature of their argument was very detailed. There was one group within the church who said that you could participate in recreation on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, but you could not have any formal rules of that recreation on the lord's day because doing so would be sort of like you do everything else every other day and the rules would make it a form of work there was another group in the church who believed that you could participate in recreation on the lord's day and you could do so with established formal rules to the games that you were participating in in recreation and so they had debates on it they talked about it they Articles were written on it, and eventually the church split over the issue. Can you imagine? I mean, first of all, I think those people don't have enough to do. They're just inventing things to argue about. Why would you destroy the unity of a church over that kind of discussion. But you know, there are other professing believers and other churches that talk about Jesus constantly. It's uh, very uh, uh, bold, very consistent to mention Jesus in conversation and uh, to identify with Jesus publicly, but then you have some conversations with some of those folks and you realize that even though they talk about Jesus all the time, they don't really understand very much about Jesus according to the Scripture. Jesus is sort of almost a, a spiritual principle in the lives of many of these folks. It seems to me with some people that you could replace the name Jesus with karma and it wouldn't change their doctrine very much at all. It wouldn't change their understanding of what they believe very much at all. This is a very thin sort of faith as opposed to people who are going to argue over nuances of what you can do if you're a Sabbatarian and your view on the Lord's Day. Two different problems, but both have the same root. There's a tendency with some people to think, you've got doctrine teaching the faith, meaning the the teachings of the faith over here on one side of a tug-of-war rope. On the other side of the tug-of-war rope, you have zeal and passion and evangelism. And, And what you have to do is either move in one direction or another. Or maybe bounce back and forth. And to be focused on doctrine and teaching is to be less passionate, less zealous, less evangelistic. And to really be zealous, really be passionate, really be evangelistic, you have to lay aside doctrine. So it's a tug-of-war rope and you're always in this tension of the battle of which one you will focus on the most. But that's only true if for this group, Doctrine is at the center of their lives, meaning abstract doctrine, theological categories. And it's only true if for this group, at the center of their lives, is this sort of reaching people devoid of the way the Bible shapes that we do it. In other words, what you call evangelism, if it's at the center... Jesus is at the margins, you got a problem. What you call doctrine, if it's at the center, but it pushes Jesus to the margins, you got a problem. Jesus is to be at the center of our lives. The doctrines are the teachings that we learn are to help us know Jesus, not the other way around. The evangelism we do is because of Jesus. We are sharing the reality of Jesus. It's not as though we have a message apart from Jesus. The gospel, the good news we proclaim, is about Jesus. So Jesus can't be pushed out of the center. See, what I want you to see here, and it's really important, is that in both instances, the problem is that Jesus and his gospel are not at the center. They're displaced to the margins. Because if Jesus is at the center, doctrine and zeal, passion, evangelism are both outflows. Let's say you have the things you learn, the doctrinal categories at the center, and Jesus at the margins. If so, you will have a spiritual pride that separates you from others in a way that you have no heart for them to know Christ. If your understanding of particular teachings is at the center of your existence, then you get your identity from the fact that you know more than the next guy. And it gives you a self-justifying sense of superiority. But that's pride. But if on the other hand, what's at the center is this sort of self-made Jesus, this sort of thin Jesus talk, when reality's self is at the center, your needs and wants, then you have a spiritual pride that will ultimately make you indistinguishable from others in the world around you that will mean you lose any sort of vitality in your witness because if you're just like everybody else and you're indistinguishable from them then you don't have a message for them but it doesn't have to be this way now we find out in this revelation of jesus christ to the churches here that this is always a struggle If we were to say, what's the problem in each of the churches we're dealing with? The problem is always that something has replaced Jesus at the center. That's always our struggle. We're always fighting to keep Jesus at the, the center reality of our lives. When we do, then we will want others to know whom we love. You love your wife, you tend to talk about her. You tell others about her. You're excited that other people would know who she is and what she does. And likewise, you want to know more about the one you love. So if you love somebody, you don't say, listen, I've learned enough about you. I want to keep our relationship at this superficial level because I'm afraid if I learn more, I won't like you, right? That's not the way it works. I want to know you more. I want to know you better. Better. If the church at Ephesus that we looked at a couple of weeks ago had a problem, the problem was a lack of love. They'd lost their first love. And the tendency was, even though they would stand for the truth in the abstract, they weren't focused on living out of the love and communicating that love to others. The church at Pergamum has a problem. And it is that they have no depth to what they believe. They aren't denying, neither group is. But both have pushed Jesus to the margins. Jesus comes to these churches through John. And he tells each of the churches what they need to remember most from the vision of Christ that we read about in Revelation 1. All of these show us that Jesus is the Lord of the church. But the way He is to be embraced as Lord in a particular church reflects a need within that church. And so things from the vision keep showing back up. And there's this pattern. He tells them something about the Lord of the church. He tells them what's wrong in the church, what's right in the church. He counsels the church and then gives a promise to the church. And that's what we see here again to the church at Pergamum. But first of all, we see in verse 12, the Lord of the church, here's what it is to the church at Pergamum, is a warrior of truth. A warrior of truth. Look with me in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in the vision of Christ in Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 16, there is this picture of Christ. Christ is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It says, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His words are like a sword. This is the one speaking here to the church at Pergamum. Now, let me remind you a little bit about the context of what's going on in Pergamum at this time. It's not as important as an economic center as Ephesus, the first church they talked to, or even Smyrna, the next one. Remember that John is on the Isle of Patmos imprisoned, or a political exile, because he would not say Caesar is Lord. He would only say Jesus is Lord. And these letters are going to the church at Ephesus here. Then we have a little bit northeast here. And now we have Pergamum here. They're going in a circle the way the mail carrier would go on the route. Pergamum was less important as an economic center, though it was a vital one, but it was most important as a religious center. A political center. We, we could think about this, this is like a, a city that has a state capital. Or a capital of a country. It is driven by those particular commitments. Now, Pergamum was the place that most embraced emperor worship. In fact, you could see it all around the city. There were all kinds of altars to all kinds of gods, but most significantly, there was an altar there built to Caesar Augustus. Pergamum was so tied in with Rome because of its willingness to champion emperor worship that this is one of the rare areas that where the authorities in Pergamum were given the right to capital punishment. The right of the sword. And so he reminds them that Christ is ultimately the one with the sharp two-edged sword. They may trust in human authorities, But all authorities will answer to the one who is the ultimate authority. But there was not only the, 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 the altar to, uh, Caesar Augustus. There was an altar to Zeus. There was an altar to Athena, the, the city's patron goddess. There was a shrine to the god of healing, Asclepos, which was, um, the, which symbol was the symbol of a snake. In fact, some medical things still have in the logo of the medicine, the, the, the snake logo, this goes all the way back here, that this God of healing was the serpent God of healing. And so this is... Prevalent in the city, it's a place that's known for a variety of a a school of medicine and all those sorts of things. So as you look around Pergamum, the identifying marker is this is a religious and political center and we can lay those one over the top of the other. Because to be politically Right in this context is to be willing to say, Caesar is Lord. You may also bow to Zeus and you may bow to Athena and you may bow to uh, the serpent God of healing, but it's all wrapped up together. And it's sitting in an area where these things are visible. Now, is it not clear in the hotbed of pagan worship, why they would need to remember that these are the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The irony of all ironies, the one who is the Prince of Peace comes using the language of war. Because apart from the defeat of the enemy, there is no peace. Before you in Pergamum, who profess the name of Jesus, get too quick to embed yourself in the political, cultural reality so you don't face difficulty or persecution, know that Pergamum may have been given by Rome the right to the sword, but all swords and all people will ultimately answer to this one Jesus, who comes and His words have the authority of a sharp two-edged sword. They're able to split the hearts of men in two. They are able to expose whatever is there. It is a reminder here to the church at Pergamum. And boy, do we need to hear it as well. That Jesus is the one with the power to judge those who are on the outside of the church. But Jesus is also the one with the power To judge those who are on the inside of the church. And those on the inside of the church better never swear allegiance to political realities outside of the church as though they put their trust in them for their safety or their comfort or for their well being. We always engage our culture in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord and nothing else is. And we engage our politics in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord, and nothing else is. Our hope is nowhere but in Jesus. There is a power, a Word, that is greater, to whom all will answer. And Jesus is committed to His words of truth, And so are to be all those who call Him Lord. Now, could there be a better vessel for recording this vision of Christ and this message to the church than John who's probably in his mid-80s right now? He's on this rocky island. There he is, even though he has every reason to sit and sulk and I don't deserve this and why am I here? But we find him worshiping, it says, on the Lord's Day. This political prisoner, because of his commitment to Jesus, is the one who reminds the church at Pergamum about the reality of who Christ is and He is the power above all powers. And He is the one to whom John will answer. To the church at Pergamum will answer. And to those at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church will answer. It is only the one who himself is a warrior for truth whose evaluation ultimately matters. You see, we're always, we're all in the midst of wondering how everyone and everything's evaluating us. How do we stack up? But Christians, in some sense, are liberated from that. Because ultimately, there's only the evaluation of one that matters. The Lord of the church, the warrior for truth. We see this. He starts evaluating the church at Pergamum here. Look with me at verse 13. We see what is right in the church. And here's what's right. Withstanding attacks from the outside. Look with me at the first part of verse 13. I know where you dwell. What glorious, hopeful words for us. He knows. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast My name and did not deny My faith. Even in the days of Antipas, My faithful witness, it's the word martus, from which we get the word martyr. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He says, listen, I know where you are. I know how difficult it is. I know the pagan world that you're embedded in. I know that you are where Satan's throne is. Satan, the adversary. You are where the adversary's throne is. Now, what's he talking about there? there's a sense in which Satan is the god of this age, and so we are all where Satan's throne is. But he's saying something more than that here. He's saying in the midst of this area of these churches he's dealing with, that Pergamum is situated at the very place that was the capital of emperor worship. The the, the very place where people bowed before a serpent god of healing. He's saying, listen, I understand that you are in a rough place. And if Satan is the god of this age, his throne in this age seems to be in Pergamum. You are the very heart of the Antichrist Worship of those who are opposed to his purposes in the world. And all you have to do is glance around and see the symbols of the serpent. And the same is fairly true for us as well. It's not too hard to glance around and see that the system of the world around us is not bowing to Jesus as Lord. And we are constantly bombarded and reminded of the symbols of the enemy. But there's one thing I want you to see, and it's that this church had zeal. It had passion. It had boldness in a sense. And they had done good things as they have faced attacks from the outside of the church. He says, you did not deny my faith. Now, that probably is better translated, you did not deny faith in me. When he says my faith, Faith, he's not using faith in terms of a body of teachings, the faith, or doctrines. He's using it in terms of your personal witness to me. When the pressure came from the outside, you didn't deny faith in me. And and there was even one named Antipas, we're not sure who he is, who was my faithful witness, even to death. He was told to deny the faith. And he did not. We didn't know him. he may have been a leader in the church, may have been an athlete. Uh, sports were a big deal then, and they were the the games were often tied to various gods that you gave allegiance to. We don't know, but we know that he was willing to die rather than verbally deny Jesus. Now, one thing is very clear as we study this together, and it's something that we need to remind ourselves of, and our culture needs to be reminded of, and that is Satan is a real personal being who hates God, who opposes Jesus, and who hates us. Spiritual warfare is not a video game, it's a reality for every believer. There is more going on than what we see. Far too often we profess our faith, but we live as though we're not in a spiritual battle. Satan is a real personal being, and he hates you. He wants you destroyed, and he wants your children destroyed. He wants you doomed and damned. Now you need to remember that because it shapes the way you live and what you value and how you order your time. We are all in the midst of this spiritual war. The church at Pergamum had outside pressure to deny faith, but they would not abandon their verbal witness to the outside pressures. And at least one of them had sealed his verbal testimony with his blood. And we can applaud that. We're supposed to cheer that. That's a great model for us, but not all is well. And that's what we see next. Verses 14 and 15. What is wrong in the church? It's weak on truth on the inside. Now, I want you to see this. There's a sense in which we can be zealous, we can be bold, we can... We can identify with Jesus publicly. But underneath, there's not really much substance to our faith. We don't even really know that well who He is or what He has said. So there are churches that are loud about Jesus. There are believers that are loud about Jesus. But personally and internally within the church... They are compromising because they are weak on truth. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. But, and this is the strong word of contrast here, but I have a few things against you. You see, there were not only those like Antipas, there were these. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Some who hold the teaching of Balaam. You remember in Numbers, beginning of our Bible, one of the first... Books, Numbers 22 through 25, there is a king named Balak, and he wants to find a spiritual leader, a powerful leader who will denounce and curse the people of God. And so he summons Balaam. Balaam comes, and Balaam doesn't care anything about the people of God. But also in his reverence for gods and particularly this God, he does not want to get on the wrong side of God. And so he keeps refusing to curse Balak, uh, to curse Israel, the people of God. But he desperately wants Balak's money because Balak is offering him a huge amount of money to curse the people of God. And so Balaam is not an honorable fellow. Balaam is trying to figure out how he can stay on the right side of this God and still bilk the money out of Balak. Get the picture? He wants to play both sides of the fence. He wants to serve two masters, we could say. He wants it both ways. He wants to attempt to serve God, at least in the broadest sense, and money. He's willing to spiritually compromise for wealth, for safety. How can I figure this out? How can I have God and get this money too? Now when I say have God, I don't mean faith in God. How can I appease this God? He tells these in the church at Pergamum, that's what you are like. You are full of compromise with the world around you. You're trying to figure out how you can live just like everyone else. You can stay on the right side of God, but you can also get wealthy, and you can do the same things everybody else does. Spiritual compromise for the sake of wealth and safety. Could it be any more relevant to our lives today? Some of us don't deny Christ, but we displace Him. We say, oh, I would really be happy and fulfilled if I just had a little... More money. You can't have money and Jesus as the center. You can't serve two masters. Oh, if my life were just a little bit easier. Why doesn't Jesus make my life easier? If He's at the center, then He's the one that directs the course of your life. You don't use Him to get what you have decided you want and need. You obey Him no matter where you find yourself. Now, clearly, there are those who profess faith today, but you bring up any ethical truth from the Scripture, and they want to back away from it. They want to say, oh, let's just love people. Let's not focus on that judge not lest you be judged, and let's be tolerant, let's just focus on Jesus. We don't want to worry about ethics, we just want to tell people about Jesus. And the question has to come up, which Jesus? Who is He? What has He said? What has He said about what it means to follow Him? If He's a king, what is the way of His kingdom? Which Jesus? You cannot have an undefined Jesus who's still Lord and Savior. Doesn't work that way. Jesus has plenty of things to say about ethics. Not as a way to be saved. It's always about the gospel. We are all unethical. We're all sinners. We all need grace. We are as far from heaven as anybody else we've ever met, to violate the law at one point is to be guilty of the whole thing in the sight of God. But those who call Him Lord do not walk in the same way. They walk differently. He turns the wisdom of the world upside down. And so let's take, for instance, the gender chaos today. There are plenty of churches who are capitulating on that issue are abandoning the biblical witness about marriage, left and right. And they're saying they're doing it in the name of what? Being loving. We're just going to focus on Jesus. We're not going to focus on that issue. But Jesus had plenty to say about that issue. You can't have it both ways. But let me say, it's not just those who are... Uh, uh, have affinity toward the cultural left that have this problem. There are plenty on the cultural right who have this problem as well. It's just we pick and choose our issues because it's the stuff, the sin that we don't want to face about ourselves or our own lives. Just like I've had those drifting leftward tell me, ah, we ought not focus on that. Let's just forget about marriage. Let's just reach people. The gospel will take care of it. Let's just love people, meet them where they are. There are those in the cultural right who I say racism is one of the wicked sins that is anti-gospel. And even though everyone wants to act like there's not a race problem today, it persists and the church must speak a strong word of rebuke against all forms of racism because racism is anti-Christ. And guess what I hear? I had a pastor. pastor. Prominent pastor pull me aside and say, listen, quit talking about race all the time. I mean, people just don't want to hear about that. Right! That's why I'm talking about it. I told the same guy. I says, the person who wants same-sex marriage tells me, just quit focusing on that. People don't want to hear about that. It may be a barrier. And you say, tell them anyway. And now you're telling me, now this is the one issue I don't want to hear about. There may be a barrier. Be quiet about it. In the name of Jesus, by the grace of God, and because Jesus is Lord, this will not be a place where we will shut our mouths on any of these issues. And I could care less whether we offend the cultural left or the cultural right. The one I'm worried about is the warrior of truth, and his name is Jesus. A church that had not denied him outwardly, Pergamum, was permitting him to be denied inwardly. They were compromising their witness from the inside out. Notice it says here that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this implies in this context that they were doing it as an act of worship because food sacrificed to idols would be in all of these uh, altar areas and temple areas, and they were doing it as an act of worship. In other words, they were trying to fit in with the culture around them. And then he says, and practice sexual immorality. By the way, this is the word from we get, where we get the word porn. All kinds of sexual immorality that was embedded in the culture. The Greeks and Romans said it's not that big a deal. Jesus says it is, and they are following in line with the culture around them rather than the Word of Christ. And too often, we do the same today. Let me tell you, the number one thing harming churches in America today is the persistent problem that a majority of people in those churches, particularly men, are involved in pornography, and it is killing their soul and strengthening, and weakening their witness for Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. The secret sin that we don't often talk about out in public... Well, I counsel enough people to know that it is a problem and it's huge. And it's one that we have to join Jesus in declaring war against. The answer is the gospel, but we must never wave a white flag on the issue or any other in which Jesus has clearly spoken. Now, staying on this path of compromise from the inside, now... Talk about Jesus on the outside. Don't have any real doctrinal convictions on the inside. Eventually, there won't be any more people like Antipas in that church. Because it will just blur into the surrounding world. Well, look at Christ's counsel to the church. That's the next thing we see in verse 16. His counsel is, turn from spiritual compromise to the Lord of truth. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Nothing like being direct and to the point. Repent. Turn from spiritual compromise. Where? To the one who is the warrior to truth. The Lord of the church. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Turn from spiritual compromise to the Lord of the church. And notice what he says here. If not, I will come to you soon. This is not talking about the second coming. It's talking about a warning of Jesus of temporal judgment on this church because of the compromise of truth on the inside and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, understand these frightening words here. These are words of judgment. These are words that mean that one who embraces the words of Christ is strengthened, their hope is expanded, but one who in the name of Christ abandons the words of Christ is under the threat of judgment. War against them. Why? Because no matter their profession, they are showing themselves to be enemies of the truth. But for those who do turn from spiritual compromise... To the Lord of truth. There's a promise. All of these churches, the messages to the churches, ends with a promise to the church. And the promise to the church here is incredibly powerful. It's intimate union with Christ. Now understand, there's the the threat of judgment for those who will not repent and, and, and everything, but for those who do, for those who are in Christ... Not just professors, but possessors of faith in Christ who looked Him afresh and anew. What they are going to know about Christ is the intimacy of their union with Him. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this is, we look at this and it seems kind of odd. Well, what is he talking about here? It's really pretty simple. That for the one who conquers, the one who's an overcomer by faith in Christ, not by your own works, but by faith in Christ, the one who looks to Christ, the one who embraces the Christ who was revealed in chapter 1, the one who continually repents of sin and looks fresh to Christ, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now. You've got to remember, at the time of Balaam, which you brought up earlier, is the time when the Lord was showering manna on the people who were hungry in the wilderness. He was feeding them the manna. He was protecting and caring for His people. There was hidden manna coming to them. Then we open the New Testament, and Jesus says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread lives forever. John 6, 58. He is the one who fulfills the promise of the hidden manna. I will satisfy you. I will feed you now and forever. And give him a white stone. We aren't really sure exactly what this means, but we do know that it does mean something about access. Some talk about the high priest who would have the stones on his his vestments, and that would allow him to enter the Holy of Holies, and it may be a reference here, but there was also stones that were given out like admission tickets. There were white stones where you would have your stone, and it would be your ticket of admission. If you do not have the white stone, you cannot get in. If you do have the white stone, you can get in. Notice what he says, I will feed you because you are my people, and you will have the ticket of admission, which is Christ." Himself. In other words, it's the opposite of being blackballed. You will not be blackballed. You will have the white stone and on it will be a new name. And the Bible naming always expresses authority over and when God renames a people in light of grace, it's authority for the purpose of protection and provision if you could think this in this way, you know, there are pet names I have for Judy that I will not share here because I want to stay married. But they are terms of endearment, intimacy. The new name certainly includes the name of Christ, but it seems to imply there's some other newness to the name that God is marking out each one of his uh, believers individually with the intimacy of their relationship because they have. The stone of admission, and he is feeding them himself the hidden manna. It is so powerful. In other words, when you think about the sharp, two edged sword of Christ, for those who are his, the promise is that sword will always be wielded for you and never against you. How glorious! Our lives will only have balance if they're centered on Christ. Christ cannot be a means to some other end that we've centered our lives on. The whole banner we've hung over the years, 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim to please Christ. To do so, we must know Him. We must never stop being filled with wonder to know Him more that we may worship Him more faithfully. And... We never get to a point where we say, I don't want to know more about you because I like our relationship the way it is. I can have more passion for you if I don't know any more about you. That's crazy. But we also don't say, we don't know information about him so we could win debates and consider ourselves superior over others. If you were to ask me about Judy, my wife, I can talk to you for a long time. I know her well, and I want to know her better. But I don't know the things I know about her, so I can win debates with you about her. (laughs) You don't know as much about Judy as I do. (laughs) That's the way some people are with Jesus. Crazy. Has nothing to do with faith. We know Him so we can communicate Him. So we can love Him and want others to love Him. Because if we love, we never stop being in wonder of the person. Uh, We don't want to be the all-head-no-heart church. But we certainly don't want to be the do-good, weak-doctrine church either. May we keep Christ at the center of our life together and our lives as His followers. Let's pray.